Well, take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 8. Hopefully when you came in, you got a bulletin. And inside that bulletin, there's an outline that looks something like this. I encourage you to take that out and help you follow along during the message this morning. A message I've entitled, Where Death Dies. Where Death Dies. This is the fifth and final message I'll be preaching from the Gospel of John chapter 8. There is a global industry that most of you are probably aware of, but you're not aware of how massive this industry is. Uh, Let me give you some numbers. In 2020, this industry totaled $119 billion in global sales. That's with a B. Uh, Projections are that forecasters say by the year 2030, which believe it or not is just seven years from now, In 2030, the global sales of this industry will top $420 billion, more than doubling in 10 years. What is the industry I'm referring to? It is the aesthetic and anti-aging industry. This is the industry that includes everything from uh, anti-wrinkle cream to Botox injections. Interestingly, Generation X, which is my generation, is the largest consumer of anti-aging products. Americans in particular, and the world in general, are captivated by this idea of holding off aging, of putting off aging, and ultimately putting off death. This is not a new idea. We can find it throughout history. In the 1500s, the explorer Ponce de Leon was looking for that fountain of youth in the state of Florida. And if you've ever been to the state of Florida, you know they have not discovered the fountain of youth there yet. Uh, If you go back even earlier, the 8th century BC, Homer, the Greek poet, said that aging is, quote, loathsome. (laughs) Um, Mark Twain and William Shakespeare also both had something to say about aging. William Shakespeare called it the hideous winter. And Mark Twain made this observation. Life would be infinitely happier if we could only be born at the age of 80 and gradually approach 18. This is the general attitude towards aging that we want to put off, we want to stave, we want to stop at all costs the inevitable grind to the grave. As such attempts are being made, there is a fad for the uber-rich called cryogenic freezing where you can have your body and your brain cryogenically frozen and preserved until such time that technology and research gets to the point where you can be reanimated and brought back to life. Well, this morning, we're going to look at this ongoing pursuit that we have, this desire to avoid, to escape, to evade what's been termed the great equalizer, death because everybody dies. So in our passage, we're going to learn some things about death. And here's a spoiler alert. Where does death go to die? Jesus. So look with me in your Bible or in the Bible study outline as we read John chapter 8, verse 48 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. Listen to it. The Jews answered him, that's Jesus, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. 
Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have seen, you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This passage is the conclusion of a long and winding discussion and debate between Jesus and his adversaries, his detractors, the Jewish religious leaders over Israel. This discussion takes place at the very end of the high and holy festival known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, this eight-day feast that took place in early October according to our calendar. It began all the way back in John chapter 7, verse 2, when John says, the feast of booths was at hand. So we've been looking at Jesus' exchange with his disciples, with the people, and with the leaders for now about nine weeks in this eight-day festival. As we get to this section, Jesus' detractors are at their wit's end. They have been bested by Jesus, and they have no answer for his theological arguments, so they result to what most small-minded people result to whenever they can't debate someone's points and positions, name-calling. They start to call Jesus names. Now, I'm sure in our modern advanced society today, people in political power would never result to toddler-type tactics of calling names to their opponents, right? We would never do that today. But that's what's happening here. Silly names, sinful nature has not changed at all. Now, the first attack they bring against Jesus, it's racially motivated. It's an ethnic slur. They call him a Samaritan. That was a vulgar word in Jewish circles. You're one of those dirty half-breeds, aren't you? The root of that slur, that ethnic insult, was the fact that, one, they considered the Samaritans to be ethnically inferior to the purebred Jewish people, but also because they considered the Samaritans to be theologically heretical. They believed they were unorthodox in their beliefs. So maybe they're putting this forward as an explanation for Jesus' statements and Jesus' theology. Oh, your, your theology is way off because you must be one of those half-breed Samaritans. You're a heretic too. The other explanation they have for his theological position and his outrageous claims is, number two, you must be possessed by a demon. You're crazy. You're a lunatic. And the root of your lunacy is the fact that there is a demon that is controlling you, controlling your speech. You must be demon-possessed. This is not the first time that Jesus would be 
called demon-possessed. Back in chapter 7, he was accused of being possessed by a demon. And again, in chapter 10, verse 20, they will accuse Jesus of being possessed by a demon again. And when we consider these personal attacks that the Jews are making against Jesus, that Jesus endured, it's helpful for us to remember what Jesus promised to those who would be his followers. In John chapter 15, Jesus makes one of the other I am statements in this gospel of John. I am the vine, you are the branches. And as that chapter goes on, he begins to extrapolate out what it means for those who are followers of Jesus to be connected to the true vine, Jesus, his life flowing through us. What can we expect the consequences to be? Look at John 15, verse 18 and verse 20. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Friends, it's simply part of being a Christian. You will be falsely accused. You will be maliciously maligned. The reason we can expect to be a target of the persecution of the world is because the prevailing worldview is contrary and opposite to the worldview of Jesus and of his followers. According to Jesus, those who are in darkness hate the light because their deeds are exposed by the light. But interestingly, Jesus responds to their slurs, to their false accusations in a very straightforward way. He simply says, I do not have a demon. That's a good lesson for us. Our human tendency is when somebody attacks us personally, we want to respond with the same kind of attack, right? You verbally insult me, I'm going to respond with the same verbal jab. They said, you must have a demon. What's Jesus' rebuttal? I do not have a demon. Just very simple, straightforward response. Then Jesus gives explanations and reasons that they can be sure he does not, in fact, have a demon, namely because he's seeking the honor of his Father, not his own honor, not his own glory. In other words, if you're dishonoring me, you are also dishonoring the God who sent me. And friends, that is very shaky ground to be on. And then Jesus makes a dramatic shift in the subject matter in this discussion. He's the one that brings up this subject of death. And that's really where I really want to focus our attention this morning. For one, because it's somewhat startling the way Jesus brings up the subject of death in this dialogue, but also because I think it's particularly relevant in a society that's approaching $400 billion a year in anti-aging and aesthetic products. Our world is dying, no pun intended, to put death at bay. We don't want to contemplate death. We don't want to consider death. We don't want to think about death. And for all purposes, do not speak of death. So let's talk about death this morning. Three things from the passage I want us to consider about death. Number one, I want us to think about the universal problem of death. Death is universal. Here's a, uh, a little news flash for you. You're going to die. Everyone dies. No one escapes death. 
It doesn't matter your socioeconomic position. It doesn't matter your occupation. It doesn't matter your education. Everyone will die. Now, this is one of the things that the religious leaders got right in their exchange with Jesus. Everyone dies. It doesn't matter how righteous or how moral or how upright your life is. They knew even the best men die. They affirmed the father of their faith, Abraham, died. In verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Even great men of God who have been used by God to speak the word of God, to write the word of God, to lead God's people, to establish the faith, they all died. Now, the reason everyone dies, according to the Bible, is because everyone sins. The cause of death universally is rooted in sin. It started with Adam, and it extends to every single one of his descendants, and that includes you and me. We will die because we sin. We break God's law. Paul put it very succinctly in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He put it like this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Listen to this. Death is the universal problem because sin is the universal poison. We all die because we all sin. In the very next chapter, in Romans chapter 6, Paul will famously write, the wages of sin is death. Now here's an important question. What is sin? What is sin? Well, the Reformers wrestled with this question 500 years ago, and they landed on this developed definition for sin. It's recorded in the Westminster Catechism, question number 14. Here's what the Catechism said. Question, what is sin? And my children better be able to answer. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Let me just define what that's saying. He's talk, the, the question and answer here is talking about two aspects of our sinfulness. A want of conformity unto the law of God is those sins of omission, not doing the things we ought to do. Transgression of the law of God is sins of commission, doing the things we ought not to do. And every one of us are guilty every day of sins of omission, and sins of commission, of not conforming to the law of God and transgressing the law of God. And the only just and fair penalty for our life of sin, according to the Bible, is death. It's the universal problem because of the universal poison. But watch this. When the Bible speaks of death, it's not only speaking of that instantaneous moment when your heart stops beating, when your lungs stop breathing, when your brain stops computing, that micro moment whenever you die. When the Bible speaks of death, it's also speaking of this eternal reality of a state of punishment called death. Death, the eternal state we know as hell. Throughout the four Gospels, Jesus speaks about this problem, this punishment, this reality of a place called hell. In fact, Jesus speaks more about hell than any other biblical figure. Here's just a few examples. 
In Luke 16, 23, Jesus said hell is a place of eternal torment. Just as much as heaven is eternal, that same quality is given to hell. In Mark 9, 43, he says it is a place of unquenchable fire. In Mark 9, 48, he says it's a place where the worm does not die. Even the smallest creature will not be consumed in the fires of hell. In Matthew 13, 42, he says it's a place where people are going to weep and they're going to gnash their teeth in regret and anguish. In Matthew 24, 30, he says it's a place of outer darkness. In Luke 16, 19 and following, he says it's a place from which there is no return. Once you're there, you can't escape. You see, because the universal poison of sin results in this universal problem of death that's not just a momentary instant of death, but the eternal punishment of death in a place called hell. Sometimes people question the proportionality of this punishment we know as hell from the Bible. I mean, think about it. Eternity? Our minds can't even contemplate that vast time. Eons and eons, millennia of millennia in hell. Some would suppose that seems disproportionate. I mean, let's say we live 70, 80, 90 years, a life of sin. Wouldn't eternity in hell be an extreme punishment for a life of sin? Now, we have this sense among us as Americans, because it comes from our Constitution. Enshrined in our Constitution is this understanding of proportionality with regard to punishment and crime. In fact, it's the Eighth Amendment. Notice what the Eighth Amendment states of our U.S. Constitution. It says, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. And so we have this this ethic in our nation that the punishment should match the crime. They should not be disproportionate. And so we may think, well, maybe, maybe hell is disproportionate. And this is why some religious groups have rewritten their doctrine on hell to these unbiblical propositions. But if you probe a little deeper, you begin to understand that eternal death, eternal hell is exactly proportional to the crime. You see, because it's not what we do in our life of sin, but who we've done it against. I've used this illustration before, but it's the best one I know that communicates this reality. If you were to come to me and you were to say, Troy, I, I want to tell you a secret so you can pray for me and, and help me, and you tell me the secret, and you trust me to the strictest confidence, and then you find out a few days later, I've told your secret to someone else. What would your reaction be? Well, you would no longer trust me, and I would probably lose you as a friend. But what if I worked for, let's say, the Coca-Cola company, Patrick, and I knew the secret recipe for Coke Zero, and that was entrusted to me, this secret, and I went and blasphemous told it to the Pepsi-Cola company. What would happen to me as a result? What would be the punishment for that crime? Well, I would lose my job for sure. I'd probably be prosecuted or sued and lose money. What if I worked for the Central Intelligence Agency? What if I was a, someone who was entrusted with government, military, foreign policy secrets, and I went and told those secrets to Iran or 
North Korea or Russia or China. You know what the punishment for treason, that's what telling U.S. secrets is. Treason is, according to the U.S. Code, Title 18, the punishment for treason is death. Same sin, telling a secret. But it's not what was done, but who it was done against. If I sin against a friend, I lose a friend. If I sin against a company, I lose a job. If I sin against the government, I lose my life. Friends, God is not just a human relationship. He's not just a sugar water company, and he's certainly not a failing U.S. government. He's the God of the universe. He is eternal, and the only appropriate proportional punishment for sinning against him is eternal. It's the only punishment that fits the crime. This is the universal problem because of the universal poison of sin. We are all going to die unless there is something that happens dramatically to impact and change us. We will experience eternal death. That leads to the second thing about death, not only the universal problem of death, but number two, the eternal promise from death. See, because Jesus makes an absolutely unbelievable promise. In verse 51, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I want you to circle that word never on your outline or in your Bible. That's why I say it is eternal. It never ends. Those who believe the word, those who keep the word of Jesus will never see death. I want you to think about to whom Jesus is making this promise. It's not to his disciples in the immediate context. It's not to would-be followers. It's to those people who just use these racial epithets against him, who called him a Samaritan, who called him demonically possessed. He says to them, if you will keep my word, you will never see death. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. And as a former pig farmer, I can tell you that is a bad idea. But it seems here that's the epitome of what Jesus is doing. He's casting the, the precious jewel of the gospel before these pigs, these religious leaders who want to see him dead. But he makes this promise, I say to you, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Friend, if you've never been captivated or enamored or awestruck by the matchless mercy of Jesus, look at Jesus right here, speaking to those who want him dead and telling them, if you will simply keep my word, you'll have eternal life. And he starts it off by saying, truly, truly. In other words, you can take it to the bank. Now, that's a remarkable promise. It's amazing because he doesn't say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never die. He says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. In the next verse, his opponents repeat what he says back to him, and they said, you will never taste death. And Jesus doesn't correct them. Anyone who keeps the word of Jesus will never see death will never taste death. 
in the over 15 years that I've been the pastor here, I've conducted dozens and dozens and dozens of funeral services in this room, in funeral homes, gravesides, and cemetery. And I've made this statement or something like it at every single one. So-and-so's body who is lying here, he or she is more alive today than they've ever been before. Friends, Peggy Radcliffe is more alive today than she's ever been before. Jakey Houts is more alive today than he's ever been before. Jim Wright is more alive today than he's ever been before. Billy Ann Smith is more alive today than she's ever been before. Kay Sarton, who died at 1230 this morning, is more alive today than she's ever been before. Aubrey Real, who was killed in front of the Sonic, she is more alive today than she ever was in this life. You may say, well, wait a second. Aren't funerals that only come together whenever somebody dies? When there's death? And Jesus says, you will never see death. You will never taste death. This seems like something of a paradox. We die physically, yes, but we don't really die. There are two passages I want to point out here in the Gospel of John where Jesus communicates the answer to this apparent paradox. One is in his discussion with Martha after her brother Lazarus has been four days dead. Notice what he says to her in John 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says, though Lazarus dies, he's not dead. Though Lazarus' body is in that grave, he's alive. He says something similar in chapter 5. We studied back in May. Look at John 5, verse 24 on the screen. He says, truly, truly, again, take it to the bank. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I want you to notice the tense of the verbs that Jesus uses here. Whoever hears, present tense, and believes, present tense, has eternal life, past tense. He does not come into judgment, future tense, but has passed, past tense, from death to life. This is why it's called eternal life. It was purposed in the past, it's appropriated in the present, and it's preserved in the future. If you are a Christian, if you have trusted Jesus, you will never die. What a promise. And watch this. Eternal life, by definition, cannot stop. It doesn't stop for five minutes in a hospital room as they take the ventilator off. Eternal life is eternal. It always happens. It always exists. From the moment your body stops working, you are still alive. You are conscious. You are aware. You are cognizant. It's eternal life. There's no such thing as soul sleep when somebody dies. You're eternally 
alive. And Jesus says the believer has unbroken, unending life forever. This is the eternal promise. If you keep my word, you will never see death. You will never taste death. Now, there's an obvious question that arises from this promise from Jesus. What gives you the right? What gives you the qualifications? What gives you the position or the power or the credentials to make such a bold promise? Well, his adversaries wondered the same thing. Who do you think you are making this kind of a promise? And that leads to the third and final thing about death I want us to consider from this passage. Number three, the supernatural power over death. His adversaries want to know how he can make such a bold claim. Look again at their response in verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Here's the question. Who do you make yourself out to be? In other words, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are, Jesus, to make such a prediction and such a claim? Well, Jesus responds to their question really in two stages. The first one is shocking. The second one is absolutely breathtaking. Here's his response. He invokes the name of their father, Abraham, in both uh, responses. The first stage, he says in verse 56, your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus says, Father Abraham, who had many sons, he rejoiced that he would see me, Jesus. He saw it and was glad. Now, as I studied this sentence this week, uh, the commentators that I read are all over the map as to what was Jesus referring to. Now, they're not sure what event or what prediction or what promise or what experience Abraham experienced in the book of Genesis that specifically Jesus was referring to. And I don't think we really need to know. It could have been the promise of the miracle child Isaac whenever Abraham was well advanced in years and Sarah as well. It could have been the fact that when he took Isaac up to Mount Moriah and he held over the knife over him and God miraculously provided a substitute sacrifice in the ram caught in the thicket and, and Isaac was for all intents and purposes, resurrected from the dead. Perhaps that's what Jesus was referring to. We don't know exactly what it is, but we do know that whatever it was, Abraham, by faith, saw Jesus coming. He believed Jesus would come, was coming, and he rejoiced and was glad at the coming of Jesus. And Jesus didn't explain exactly what it was, and these adversaries don't seem to care, which leads to stage two of Jesus' answer to the question, who do you make yourself out to be? The Jews responded to that statement, you're not yet 50 years old, verse 57, and you've seen Abraham? Here's stage two of his response. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Right here in this verse 58, it is the clearest, most forthright claim to deity that Jesus makes in all four Gospels. 
before Abraham was, I am. And in this verse, think about the tense of the verbs. This really doesn't make grammatical sense. If Jesus was just wanting to prove his pre-existence before Abraham, he would have said, before Abraham was, I was. But this grammatically imperfect sentence, what is he saying? Before Abraham was, past tense, I am. Well, the Jewish leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying. I am is the name of God. I am is Yahweh. I am is the revealed name of God given to Moses from the burning bush as God spoke from that bush. And his voice says, I am. He is the self-existent one. He is the eternal one. He is the I am. And Jesus says to them, these PhDs in Jewish theology, before Abraham your father was, I am. That's why they picked up stones to throw at him. They sought to kill Jesus because of his claims to deity, because of his claims to be God. They wanted him dead. You know, today among the popular platitudes about Jesus today, you may hear people say something to this effect, that, well, they, they wanted to kill Jesus because he was so nice. They killed Jesus because he was so inclusive. They wanted Jesus dead because he welcomed the outcasts, the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. He was killed for courageously loving the unlovable. They couldn't take it anymore. Now, there is truth that Jesus did all those things. In Luke 15, the tax collectors invite Jesus over for dinner, and, and the Pharisees accuse him of dining with sinners. In Luke 19, Zacchaeus invites him over to his house, or actually Jesus invited himself over. And the Pharisees accused him then of being a glutton. You're, do you know who you're dining with? You're dining with a sinner. They had all sorts of, G, of reasons to be upset with Jesus. He showed grace and mercy to sinners. He toppled their traditions around the Sabbath, and he certainly didn't meet the expectations of a true prophet that they had set up. But none of those things compelled them to kill Jesus. Why did they want Jesus dead? It was not because he was a souped-up version of Sesame Street. They wanted Jesus dead because he claimed to be God. And we see this explicitly in John chapter 10. They say it. In John 10, verse 33, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So before you bend your mind to the notion that Jesus was killed because he was such a super nice guy, think about what his adversaries actually said. It's not for any kind of good work that you've done that we're going to kill you. We are going to kill you because you claim to be God. And friends, this should be something of a sober warning for us in 2022. The world in which we live will accept our charity. They love the fact that Christians, more than any other organization or group or people, builds hospitals to help sick people. They are thankful for the fact that we have started things like uh, the Samaritan Center or Samaritan Purse. 
They're thankful we started organizations like the Salvation Army. They're thankful for the fact that the third biggest reliever of disaster relief in the world is the Southern Baptist Disaster Relief Agency. We're first on the scene at every tornado, every hurricane, every natural disaster, and they will lovingly welcome our good works. But like Jesus, we should help the downtrodden. We should help the down and outers. But they will not hate us for that. In fact, look at this next slide. Like Jesus, the world will not hate us because of our charity, but because of our theology. They're glad to receive the charity of loving Christians. They're glad to receive a cold cup of water in the name of Jesus just so long as you don't talk about the exclusive claims of Jesus. They're glad to receive our charity of helping people in times of disaster, in times of need, just so long as you don't say anything about Jesus being the Lord of the universe. We don't want to hear that gospel. See, friends, there's no amount of personal charity, of giving away our goods to assist the poor, of working at the soup kitchen on Thanksgiving Day, of recycling recyclables, and we should do all those things. But none of those things will ultimately commend this exclusive gospel to the world. Why? Because when we say Jesus is God, when we say Jesus is Lord, that means we are submitting to his rule. We're submitting to his law. We're submitting to his ethics. We're submitting to his morality. And more and more, day by day, we see a culture that is out of step with the morality and the ethics of Jesus. And no matter how much charity we do, and we should do charity, they will reject us and oppose us and hate us because of our theology. That's one implication from this passage I want us to consider. But there is what I believe is an even more relevant and a greater implication from this passage, namely the subject matter of death. You see, the implication for us this morning is that when Jesus says the profound promise, you and you and you and you and you and you and you will never see death, who's making that promise? The one who has defeated death. Who's making that promise? You will never taste death. The Son of God, the great I Am, the ruler of the universe, the speaker of stars and breather of galaxies has promised you, you will never die. This should create in us a fearlessness that is unshakable, a boldness that is unflappable, and a courage that is unsinkable. I want to show you how this works itself out in our lives from one final passage, and I'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. The Bible says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, watch this, and deliver 
all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you know what the fear of death is? Slavery. Living with a fear that you might die is enslavement. And Jesus died and was resurrected from the dead to deliver us from the fear of lifelong slavery, the fear of death. Let me illustrate it like this. Last week, Daryl and I were in Zimbabwe, and at the end of that week, we went to a game park where we were able to drive around and see some animals that are on the threatened or endangered list. We saw some giraffe and some zebra, as they say in Zimbabwe, and we saw some wildebeests and some warthogs and some uh, baboons, all those kind of animals. As we were driving through that park, I was reminded of the first time I was ever on the continent of Africa almost two decades ago. And on that trip, I went on a real Jeep safari through a game reserve in Zambia. And on that Jeep safari, as we first entered into that game park, uh, we came upon an antelope. And this antelope was standing in the grass by itself, still and frozen. It was an odd sight. He was separated from the herd. And the safari guide said to us, this happens whenever an antelope senses there is a predator close by. In this case, likely a lion. When an antelope senses or hears something that indicates to him there is a predator close by, he will stand perfectly still, frozen, ears perked, eyes pointed forward, not moving a muscle. Fascinating. Well, that Jeep safari was about four hours long, and in that safari, we actually did come upon a lioness who had just completed a kill, and she was there with bloody mouth over her dead animal. So we ended the tour, and we went out the exit of the safari, uh, the, the game reserve. This antelope, four hours later, amazingly, was in the same exact position, unmoved, staring forward, ears perked, still frozen. Why? The fear of death. The fear of death had overcome this antelope. He did not want to be that lion's lunch. This is a perfect picture, I believe, of many Christians. We're frozen. No risks. Not stepping out in faith. We're rendered absolutely useless because of this fear of death. Fear of public embarrassment. Fear of reprisal from an employee or an employer. Fear of the loss of reputation. Frozen, rendered absolutely useless. And Jesus, the great I am, says, whoever obeys my word will never see, will never taste death. What should that do for us? It should embolden us to live a life of risk-taking, abandon for the gospel. What's the worst they can do to us? Kill us. Ah, to die is Christ. We're with him. 
Just let this promise from Jesus. You will never see death. Let that compel you in your Christian walk. And I would submit to you today that this type of courage, this type of fearlessness on the part of Christians, it's what the world needs most. To see believers in Jesus who live with absolute fearlessness. Living with no fear of death. Because this is what will really commend the gospel we proclaim to a lost and dying world. And that leads to my last thought. The world desperately needs to see the fearlessness of those who know they will never taste death. Be one of those people. Be one of those people who walks in fearlessness, who is not frozen, incapacitated, absolutely useless because of this fear of death. Let's pray.